Good morning again, everybody. Glad you're here. I remember uh, when I was about 19 years old, I was, I was working at a power plant in a place called Mount Storm, West Virginia, and I was working with a guy by the name of Randy, and Randy, they actually called him Guppy. So Guppy and I were talking one day down in the, in the shop we were at. We were talking about one thing and another, and, and then we got to the subject of faith. And we started talking about the gospel, and I, I started explaining it, and he said, Chad, there's no point in having this conversation. And I said, really? He said, yeah, you see, it, it doesn't matter if you tell me about this or not. It's completely immaterial. And I said, is that right? He said, yeah, because he said, either you're chosen or you're not. He said, either you're in or you're out, but he said, it's already set. So he said, we don't need to continue with this conversation. I knew what he was referring to. And somehow, someone had gotten to him, or he had misunderstood that there's no sense in even hearing or trying to believe and understand what the gospel says. Because, according to him, some were chosen, some were not. Don't fool with it. And tragically, Randy had come under the impression that there's no point, again, listening to or understanding the gospel. You see, you get to a verse like what it says in John chapter 6, verse 44. That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And some wrongly fall under the impression that this means there's absolutely no human responsibility in the act of salvation. See, what I want to show you and explain to you today is that this should never be a deterrent from someone seeking Christ. And what I want to talk about this morning is how do I understand God's drawing to himself? How do I understand what often falls under this umbrella? We refer to it as predestination or election, and it's difficult to understand. And it comes up in the passage we're going to look at today. I'd like to start this morning with John chapter 6, uh, verses 35 through 51. John 6, 35 through 51. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 6, starting at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Whoever, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You may be seated. We're continuing on this morning through the Gospel of John. And the writer of this Gospel was explicit in why he wrote the book. He said, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And what we're talking about this morning is this idea of the divine enablement that has to happen for you and I to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about this passage this morning and look at it under three different headings. First of all, that Jesus comes to these people offering satisfaction, offering them bread of life so that they won't be hungry again, so they won't be thirsty again. But the people know who Jesus is. They're familiar with him, and they have contempt. They're sort of looking down on him because they know him, and that's going to lead to unbelief. But then Jesus is going to counter their grumbling, And he's going to explain that God sovereignly enables us to believe. That they are not messing up the plan of God through unbelief. So let's get started this morning. Let's talk about this satisfaction that is offered. Because Jesus is going to respond to the crowd. They just said to him in verse 34, give us this bread. They're so excited when they hear Jesus describing a bread that makes people uh, satisfied forever, but he is going to press into them. And he'll say explicitly in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is one of seven I am statements that Jesus is going to be making. And even those two words, I am, would have been familiar to the Jew. There was a connection here, because in the Old Testament, God referred to himself as simply I am. He is the existing one, the one who has always been, the one that will always be, the one that lives eternally outside the bounds of time. Jesus is impressing on his hearers also that they are not going to have to keep returning to him repeatedly for salvation like they had thought back in verse 34, that he would permanently satisfy them. Unlike the manna that had to keep coming back, he would bring permanent satisfaction. And the nevers in this verse are emphatic. And coming to Jesus and believing on Jesus are synonymous concepts, just as bread and water together present the total human need. And Jesus isn't saying that continual dependence on him is not important. 
He meant that believing on him for salvation would satisfy the basic human need and desires in this life. But he's going to let the crowd have it. And he, he expresses this, this huge disappointment in their unbelief. He's not asking them to take some kind of blind leap into darkness. Because, see, he's already done a sign. He's, he's done this miracle. He fed 20,000 of them. And he's pressing into them now. Why don't you get it? They've seen Jesus himself, but they've not believed. But Jesus is going to explain to them in verse 37 that their unbelief has nothing to do with any failure on the plan of God or failure of Christ himself. That Jesus knows that all whom his Father gives to him will come to him. And Jesus explains in verse 38 that he came here to do the will of the Father. And look again at verses 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, speaking of the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone whom the Father has given him will come to him, and he will resurrect them. And verses 37 through 40 contain Jesus' explanation of how someone becomes a Christian. Christ explained that salvation involves two things, both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That belief itself has a divine component to it. Now, what is this? Because this is not an easy deal. Because, see, on the one hand, the only way that anyone has ever come to saving faith in Christ is because God himself enabled him to do it or her to do it, such that we have absolutely can take no credit for our faith in God. On the other hand, if someone denies Jesus Christ, they will be held 100% responsible for their decision. Both are true. The divine enablement and the human responsibility. We can take no credit for our salvation, and we take 100% responsibility if we do not believe. How can a person know if he or she has been drawn or if they're elect? And the answer is really simple. You follow the command of Christ. The command that appears to, to let him or her come to faith in Jesus. And if one believer, according to Christ, if one believer failed to reach heaven who willingly came to him, it would be a disgrace on he himself. That he had not saved that person. That they did not reach heaven. He's saying that's not how this works. And this should give us a tremendous sense of assurance. 
That's the intent of this passage. I love what one writer Morris says about this. This thought is of the greatest comfort to believers. Their assurance is based not on their feeble hold on Christ, but on his sure grip on them. See, it is God who does the saving. We bring faith to the table. But when he's chosen you, which you know by virtue of believing in him, you can be 100% assured that that salvation is never, ever going to go away. Jesus offered them complete satisfaction for human desire in himself. The crowd's not going to go for this, though. See, they're familiar with Jesus. And that's going to be a problem for them because that familiarity is going to breed contempt. They'll look down on him, and that's going to lead to unbelief. Look at how these Jews are going to respond in verses 41 and 42. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, this is, they said is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? See, they didn't get it. They didn't really get the whole uh, virgin birth, and they've got this group of grumblers. They're marginalizing Jesus. They're familiar with him. He quietly had grown up among them. They knew his parents. At least they thought they did. And they're missing it. They're missing out on what could be. Because, see, this those who believe this Christian life is boring, who don't take this invitation to God, they don't buy what it says in Psalm 34, 8, that tasting and seeing the Lord is good. Instead, those who don't take this invitation are going to selfishly pursue whatever they think will not make them bored or happy or content. And what happens when someone chooses a God other than the one true God is they're going to try to make good things, things of ultimate pursuit. So a good vacation becomes an ultimate pursuit. A nice car becomes an ultimate pursuit. Getting that right house, that right spouse becomes an ultimate pursuit because they're missing the satisfaction that God is offering them. These are all good things. They're blessings. But see, they're not ultimate things. And putting hopes in those things is always going to leave someone dissatisfied. And Jesus is saying the problem at the root is a lack of belief. That God is standing in front of them and they're not getting it. And they're going to need God's help if any of them are going to believe. I'm going to look at this next section now and see that God sovereignly, that is, God in his all-powerfulness, enables us to believe. And Jesus in no way acknowledges their grumblings. He, just, he basically just says, stop it. Just stop grumbling. Shut up already. He comes back to their unwillingness to believe, and he explains that the Father must draw people to himself, and these will be the ones resurrected. He proceeds to explain uh, what this drawing is, look at verses 45 through 47. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The people had grumbled, but Jesus doesn't even address their issue. But again, it goes back to their problem that they have a lack of belief. There's a spiritual problem happening among them. And, and what it says in John 64 echoes the prophet Isaiah in chapter 54, verse 13 of Isaiah, when the prophet foresees a, a rebuilt Jerusalem. The Israelites had been exiled in the Old Testament, but he's telling them that things are going to be rebuilt. And intimacy with God is going to be regained. And Jesus looks at this prophecy and he sees the relevance here in John 6, that God must move the inner heart of a person before he or she can see things of God. And this takes place on God's initiative. Jesus also makes it clear that whoever believes has eternal life. And that is the evidence of the Father's drawing. Your willingness to believe is the evidence that Jesus has drawn you to himself. And he re Jesus repeats themes that are found in the introduction, that he's the bread of life, that I am the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover, that celebration for 1,400 years. I am the bread that you've been looking for. And he clarified the distinction between physical bread and the bread that God provided in the wilderness and the spiritual bread that he provided in Jesus. The result of eating that manna was temporary satisfaction that ultimately was going to be followed by physical death. But the result of believing in Jesus was life eternal. It was going to be life forever. There was no threat of a second or spiritual death, which is where someone would wind up in eternity in hell, having not put their faith in Jesus. He's going to climax this in verse 51, saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So in this passage, again, we've got two truths. We have the responsibility of man to believe as well as the divine enablement of man to believe. And both are true. And both come up here in the text. It's a theme we'll see again and again throughout the book of John. And we have trust in Christ. We find that it was 100% an act of God on our behalf to save us. The Father draws us. And we have the responsibility of belief that without the power of God, which I'm calling His sovereignty... His drawing us to himself, none of us would be saved. So what does that mean? Because, see, I want each and every one of us to think rightly about what God's sovereign choosing means. And I don't want us to think wrongly. So I'd like to take a moment and talk first about what does God's sovereignty mean and then we'll talk about what it doesn't mean. But first of all, well, what does it mean? I've mentioned this before. First of all, it means assurance. It means assurance. Assurance that your salvation doesn't go away because it is God who does the saving. We believe and we trust. But look again at what it says in verse 40. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks say, to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. That when you're in the hand of God, you can't be taken out. That should give you a wonderful sense of assurance. If you've ever been worried that you committed some sin and you're afraid, man, have I lost my salvation? No, that is not how this works. So first of all, assurance. And secondly, perseverance, that you will keep on believing. And that's related to the last one. If God has drawn you, and, and this is a message throughout John. And then finally, third, it should be a wonderful comfort. It should be a wonderful comfort. Be comforted in God's sovereign drawing to himself. Look what it says in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You're not going through some random circumstance right now that just seems horrible that God is not playing some hand in to use it for your good. How does that work? I mean, there's mystery to this, right? This is mysterious. I don't know. I believe it. I don't understand it. But I believe it to be true. That God's always acted for the good of those whom he called to himself. And God's choosing should be a comfort to believers in their everyday lives. So that's what this sovereign drawing of God means. But then the other question we have to answer, well, what doesn't it mean? What doesn't it mean? And please listen carefully. It doesn't mean that we, describe, that we subscribe to something called fatalism. Now, what is fatalism? It's a system in which human choices and human decision really do not make any difference. And if we look in, again, at, at John in the previous chapter, John chapter 5, verse 40, he said this, Listen to it carefully. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, Jesus is pointing out the human responsibility. And to quote, there's a wonderful quote. This is from Wayne Grudem. He said, when talking about our response to the gospel offer, Scripture continually views us as genuine persons personal creations who make willing choices to accept or reject the gospel. That is absolutely true. And look again, there's an invitation. If you go to the book of Revelation, at the end of the book, uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, look at what it says there. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, this is why we share the gospel with people. This is why those disciples risked their life. Paul himself, who spoke extensively about election and predestination, gave his life to take the gospel to people so they could hear it and so they could believe it. So we're not talking about fatalism. The choices that you make bear weight and have consequences. And the sin of the rejection of the gospel is the sin of disbelief. 
And then secondly, God's sovereign choosing doesn't mean that we're robotic. It doesn't mean we're pre-programmed like robots and that we don't have a will. We're made in the image of God. We make real choices that have real outcomes and real effects on our lives. We make choices according to our will for what we desire. And then finally, God's sovereign drawing, some to himself, does not mean that God's unfair. It does not mean that God's unfair. Obviously, God is good. We believe he is good. We believe he's fair in everything that he does. What isn't fair is that Jesus had to come and sacrifice his life, who was perfect, who knew no sin, and be tortured to death for you and I. See, that's what's not fair. What would have been fair uh, is to have treated us the way he treated the angels. Look at what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. You see, that's fair. What did God do? He didn't do this. For us, he made a way of salvation. See, this is what my friend Randy did not get. This is what he didn't understand. And hear me very carefully when I say this. Think about this question when it comes to you. That the door to heaven is open for anyone who is willing to walk through it. The question is whether or not you're willing. Are you willing today to put your trust in Jesus Christ? That's what you have to ask yourself. Are you willing to walk through that door? Are you willing to believe Jesus is who he says he is? Are you willing to trust in him for your salvation? You see, that's how you know if you've been chosen, simply by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to close with this, this story about Queen, Queen Victoria. Uh, she attended a service at St. Paul's Cathedral and listened to a sermon. It interested her greatly, and afterwards she went up to the chaplain who delivered the, the sermon and asked him the question, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? The chaplain's answer was that he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure, which was tragic. And that incident was published in the court news, and it came to the notice of a minister by the name of John Townsend, who also knew this was a tragic misunderstanding by this chaplain, and he sent a letter, a note to the queen after he'd heard about her question. And he said this, To Her Gracious Majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, he said, With trembling hands, but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. 
And John Townsend began praying for him, and for, rather for the queen, and he gathered a group to start praying for the queen. And they offered up prayers for her, and then about two weeks later, he received a letter from the queen herself to John Townsend. I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me. And I trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Signed, Victoria. And after this discovery of Christian assurance, she used to carry around a little booklet. She gave it away. It was titled, Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. Because that is what she had found in Christ. And it's what you can know in Christ today as well. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you showed us how much you loved us because you sent your son to die for us. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here who's not yet willingly put their faith in you, that they know that that door to heaven is open for them right now, that they would put their faith in you, that they would trust in what you did, Jesus, and taking all the sin of the world, putting it on yourself, then sacrificing yourself on the cross. And that, Father, you forgave every sin and that you resurrected your son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate that now as we go into this act of communion, this, this physical sign, this visible sign of an invisible grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.